Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church New Bern podcast. My name is Paul Scott Chernitsky, and I am here on Super Bowl Sunday with my co-host, Anna. Hey, Paul Scott. I um, want to stop you right there. I have a slight correction for you. Yes, Super Bowl Sunday, S-O-U-P-E-R. We talk about Super Bowl. We do an offering. There's a soup lunch today. Well, you'll be hearing this the day after that. But the correction is, in my family, it's Puppy Bowl Sunday. It is one of our most honored and sacred family traditions that we always watch the Puppy Bowl with the Kitty Halftime Show. In my family, if you have to think about or hang out with puppies, that is not a celebration. That is uh, the worst. (laughs) Puppies are the worst. You heard it here first. Um, Yes, but I'm watching them on TV, and they're playing, and they get called for things like unnecessary rough, rough, roughness. Um, It's um, Although I was very shocked to find out that when you have a child who's in college, they don't give them days off to come home and watch the puppy bowl with their mother, which I thought would be standard, and apparently not. Uh, Is there a kitten bowl? I think there kind of is. I think there is. I think it's a later one. And so we're kind of loyal to the puppy bowl. But but if that if that's I mean, kitten bowl, I do like the kitty halftime show and they have and they have other animals involved, too. But if if, yeah, kitten bowl, I think that's awesome. Well, um, we uh, had a big week. Last Sunday was Scout Sunday. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anything coming up in the near future? We don't want to keep our listeners too long because some of us might need to watch the actual Super Bowl or, sure. I guess, the puppy or kitten bowl. So what's yes. going on at First Prez? Anything in the near well, future? The sermon, well, the sermon you're going to hear today is from the Reverend Grady Mosley. He's a former associate pastor here who um, loves this congregation. And we are so pleased that he um, was going to be in town and wanted to preach. So that's a huge treat for us. And Lent is coming up. Um, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of stuff, but... But maybe we'll just live in the moment for today. We'll live in the moment. And yeah. if you regularly watch uh, the sermons on YouTube, uh, you may have noticed that it didn't show up at its normal right. time in the morning. Uh, that's because I recorded it um, live and then yes. edited it. And so it, it, it is up now. Yes. Not all of our preachers, we're going to have some guest preachers in the months ahead, and they can't necessarily come in and pre-record. So we're just adapting. But we're also kind of getting used to the fact that at some point we're going to be live streaming. And so the sermon will happen with the whole worship service live at 11 o'clock. Yeah, it'll be so cool. No, nothing's been set in stone yet, but nope. but we have been. there has been meetings about the live streaming and it's going well. We are moving closer. I, I would say we're a few months away, but it's definitely in process. Cool. Well, everyone, have a great game. Have a great puppy, bowl, kitten, bowl, super bowl, S-O-U-P-E-R bowl. And we will talk to you next week. Yes. Thank you, Paul Scott. Good morning, everyone. Last time I uh, stood in this place was back in September of 1986. It was uh, as Kim and I were preparing to relocate to Edinburgh, Scotland, where I would continue my studies at New College. One of my final remarks back then was that the same Lord who had brought me to this place was now taking me away, to which the congregation immediately sprang to its feet and began to sing together, what a friend we have in Jesus. (laughs) No, I was pretty green back then. I want to thank those of you who were uh, living in in the part of the congregation back then for their patience. and I want to thank Anna and the other members of the session for allowing me to, uh, to share the pulpit with her this morning. Today's sermon 
um, is going to be um, as much a spiritual memoir as it is a homiletic exercise with a little bit of personal confession thrown in to make things interesting. Um, uh, Joe Mullen, years ago, uh, was a senior minister at First Presbyterian in Greensboro, and in one of his final sermons, he, um, he says, a minister needs to be cautious about sharing too much about their own spiritual journey in, in life, uh, need to be cautious about parading it before the members of the congregation, um, is a cautionary tale about appearing to be too, uh, uh, too proud of their life. But I think he also went on to say that it's important that ministers also share a part of their personal spiritual journey so that the members of the congregation know that they deal with the same sort of stuff that you deal with and that they can relate to their parishioners and help them in that way uh, work through the difficult sayings that Jesus shares with us at times. And today's passage indeed is one of those difficult sayings. Let us pray. O oh God, creator of heaven and earth, of everything near and far and all that is in between, seen and unseen, we ask that you would do only what you can do is with your creative and piercing spirit to use your word to enlighten and transform us into the beings that more closely resemble your beautiful son, Jesus the Christ, in whose name we now pray. Amen. Scripture this morning comes from what is popularly known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as it is recounted in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. I have taken the liberty to interpret the Greek text. Uh, you will be familiar, as I read it this morning, you will be familiar with the cadence of the passage, but unfamiliar with some of the English words that I've used in place of the RSV that we typically read. My hope is that these liberties will make Jesus' words more applicable to our real life experiences. Hear now the word of our Lord. You've heard it said, love those of whom you are fond and hate your nemesis. But I tell you, love those for whom you have contempt and pray for those who have somehow wounded you, that you may prove to be the offspring of your creator who is in heaven. For God causes the sun to rise on the benevolent and the benevolent and sends rain on the virtuous as well as the iniquitous. But if you love those who love you, what reward do you receive? Do not even the irascible do that? But if you greet only your people, what are you doing differently than the others? Do not even the small-minded to do that, but rather be irreproachable, therefore, as your creator is incorruptible. May God bless us the reading of his word. Amen. Cain hated Abel because Cain perceived that God's preference was better and more cherished over Abel's gifts than Cain's gifts. King Saul hated David for the admiration the people of Israel had for the young warrior's bravery and charisma. Jonah was sorely displeased 
with God's kindness towards the people of Nineveh. He rathered their destruction over their salvation. Esau hated Jacob because he deceived him out of his birthright, and he sought to kill him. Joseph was hated by his 11 brothers for his brashness and his hubris, and no less for Joseph's favoritism in the eyes of his father Jacob. So they threw him into a pit and left him there in the wilderness to die. Saul of Tarsus hated the followers of Jesus because he thought they were heretics, and he made a career out of rounding them up and stoning them to death like Stephen had been stoned by those who hated him for his faith. And let us not forget Herodias, King Herod's wife, who bade her daughter, Salome, to ask Herod for John the Baptist's severed head, because John had spoken the truth about her adulterous marriage. We read these stories in the Bible, and we can't help to think how barbaric they are, We think of ourselves, tendency to think of ourselves as more civilized and measured in our response to those who harm us, those who disrespect us, who shade us, or who are mean to us in some degree or another. But Jesus doesn't grade us on a scale. He loves us all, no matter what category our adversaries fall into or what category any of us fall into. Pray for those who harm you, he tells us, and for those whom you have believed who have wronged you, or even those who haven't even experienced direct conflict with, but still you have contempt for. I don't think that Americans have turned on other Americans so much in history as we have in the last several days, years rather. And that could even go for even Christians. Maskers versus maskers, vaxxers versus vaxxers or anti-vaxxers, blood, the blood sport that politics has become, uh, conflict over the Second Amendment, anti versus pro-abortion, censoring books in school libraries, critical race theory, LBGTQ. I mean, all of those sorts of things are on, on the news and in our conversations these days in ways that they've never been before. Kim, my wife, is a psychotherapist. And many times in the evening while we sit at the dinner table and she's had a very long day with the broken, distressed clients that she deals with, she will recount to me, and of course keeping confidentiality, about how rough and stressed and wounded people are these days. There are a lot of hurting people out there, she has said often. It's overwhelming. It is difficult to know how to deal with people who are difficult in our lives, even when um, uh, and, and then dealing with them in ways that Jesus is trying to teach us makes things even more difficult. Dr. Paul Ochtemeyer, a professor of mine in seminary at Union, um, uh, was one of the most esteemed professors there at Union. He was an expert not only in Hebrew, but also Greek. And he was the one who, who actually was the editor of their um, scholarly journal, Interpretation. So when in class one day, early in my career there at Union, when we were studying Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, 
he emphatically proclaimed, if I come across someone that I disdain and do not punch them in the face, it is an act of love. <laughs> now, I was new at this whole seminary thing at that time, but I thought to myself, I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind <laughs> from what I've read in the Gospels. But I didn't raise my hand and contradict the professor at that point. It was it's not something I would have done. I believe, though, it is safe to say, in light of Jesus' word, that the content of our hearts, to borrow a phrase from Martin Luther King Jr., comes seriously into play here. And as far as the content of our heart goes, the Germans, the German language, has a wonderful word to describe a very subtle way that we can dislike other people. And if I, I don't know if I'll say it correctly, but schadenfreude, uh, Schadenfreude, Schadenfreude, which defined is the pleasure one derives from the misfortune of another. The joy one derives from the misfortune of another. Many times we may not wish harm on another, but we can find a bit of satisfaction when misfortune falls those who, 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 um, who receive, in our estimation, their just rewards. Like the guy who passed me on Thursday, as I was uh, actually Tuesday, as I was driving here, he must have been doing 90, 95 miles an hour. Five minutes later, I passed him because he was on the side of the road getting a ticket from a state trooper. <laughs> and then several years ago, when I was a contractor, I had a client who wanted to add some very expensive French roof tiles on the floor of his kitchen. He had bought them and he wanted me to price the installation, and I did. I got my best tile guy to, uh, to give me a price. And he thought, hey, that's just way too much. I'm gonna get my handyman to install them. And he, that's exactly what he did. And it doesn't matter how great a tile looks, but if you don't install it well, it looks horrible. It was 10 days later, I had hired people to tear out that, that French tile floor, and uh, he admitted his mistake. And uh, we put it back in. It was good that the customer owned up to his mistake. But many customers, in my experience, when I was a contractor for 20 years, did not. As a contractor, I've been shorted on progress payments and final payments, yelled at because I didn't, uh, uh, because the us customer didn't understand that I built what the architect had drawn, but because he didn't know how to, to read drawings, blamed for a customer's designer dog gone missing, and financial papers being stolen out of a desk. As it turned out, the owner's painter had let the dog out, which was then caught uh, dog napped and disappeared, because uh, you can do that, I guess, with dogs. You can dog nap dogs, and you can sell them on the internet. And the papers had been moved by her husband, but he failed to tell her that he had moved them out of the, out of the desk. But in between, in the meantime, uh, there were some hot, heated words. Even as a minister, I've been on the receiving end of some pretty harsh comments as well. None here, I will tell you, while I was here. But I have been, in my ministry, been uh, the target of some really harsh things. Um, the teachings of Jesus are difficult. They are difficult. They're difficult to embrace and to practice, whether you are a preacher or a parishioner. These words of Jesus today, I would say, fall into a category that I'd like to title, Things I Wish Jesus Had Never Said. But I'm not, I don't have the ability to make them go away. 
He ends this sermon. This is basically at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect as your creator is perfect. And he tells us, be irreproachable in so many words, as your creator is incorruptible. As uh, actually the children's sermon said a moment ago, there are times when we have been wounded by others and we want to wound them back. And this is understandable. But this is not what Jesus teaches us. We may be tempted. We may be tempted and imagine trading hurt for hurt, wound for wound. But this is a back and forth, zero sum way to live. But if this faith stuff is worth its salt, we are going to have to claim that there is any lightness in our lives uh, worth uh, placing on a lampstand, which I understand Anna preached about last week. Then the words of our, G our Lord needs to find some traction in the lives that we actually live and the things that we imagine in our hearts and in our uh, minds regarding all the easy, but particularly all the difficult relationships that we have in our lives. When I arrived at Union Theological Seminary back in 1979, Dr. John Leith had been a professor there for decades. He was a legend in his own time. I found him to be astute in his assimilation of both reformed theology, uh, theology and authentic in the life that he lived as a Christian. There are a couple of statements he made in our first class that I remember as if it was yesterday. I probably couldn't tell you anything else that he taught regarding Calvinist theology, but I do remember two statements he made about his own personal experience uh, of faith. One, you will not and cannot be a competent theologian until the age of 50, which I found, we all found a little interesting. And then, until you stand at the edge of the abyss and look in, you will never know the true meaning of life. And that got past me until I was diagnosed with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis in 2016. An incurable disease which a humorless pulmonologist told me would take my life in three to five years unless I had a lung transplant. This is a little more radical than take two pills and call me in the morning, which is what I was hoping to hear. Almost 60 years later, I emerged from OR25 at Duke Medical Center on Father's Day, just last year, 2022, with a set of someone else's lungs. Initial recovery was quick and promising, but complications followed. Just days into November, my transplant coordinator called me to report to the results of the most recent bronchoscopy. Grady, you have COVID. You need to come to, uh, back to Durham tomorrow for a monoclonal infusion. No problem, I'll be there. Well, that's not all. Oh, you have an aspergillus and fungal infection. We have to prescribe a medication and you need to begin it immediately. Okay, I'm on, I'm on, uh, on board. Well, you also have an acute rejection going on in an A1 level like before. So I said, well, we're gonna treat it the same way we did before with a high dose of prednisone? No, nah, it's a little more complicated than that. You also have donor-specific antibodies. 
your body is making specific antibodies designed to attack your donor's lungs. Well, I said, got to be positive. I said, you've seen each of these conditions before, correct? And she said, well, yeah. But then there was a pause. But we've never seen all of these in someone at the same time. Her words trailed off. So now in the case study, I responded. And there was no response from her. Another pause. I'll be in touch with you with a plan, she said. I said, okay. And we hung up. Six weeks later, six weeks later, after they finally came up with a plan, and I was admitted back into the hospital for at least two weeks over Christmas, and depending upon my stay was dependent upon how I would tolerate the treatment. In the meantime, though, of that six weeks, I became quite annoyed, and in some cases angry, to put it lightly. Six weeks to come up with a plan? Six weeks? All the time knowing that whatever was going on inside of me was getting the opportunity to do its work. Six weeks without a meaningful communication, I felt ghosted. They had, they had come up with a plan and communication actually ceased in, a, in any sort of meaningful manner. Six weeks of assuming my condition was worsening all the while. And to top it off, I now would be in the hospital over Christmas, which I vehemently said that I would not do. Shortly after my admission, when I did uh, succumb to their request, admission in mid-December, I remarked to a nurse uh, that came, it was uh, working uh, infusing me or something one day, actually the second day I was there, and I remarked to her, I'd already walked around the floor, I remarked to her about everybody else on the floor seeming to be really ill. And she responded by saying, yeah, this is known as the end of life floor. <laughs> Things begin to get real dark. <laughs> They're not looking up right now. Um, and, uh, and I began to go uh, mentally and emotionally um, uh, into this dark hole. And in fact, I actually began to mentally put together the bulletin for my memorial service. But somewhere during this time, I remember what Dr. Leith had said about looking into the abyss. And I was keeping a journal. And some of those journals uh, ended up on Caring Bridge. And if you know what that is, it's a great way to keep up with people that um, are, um, are ill in one way or another. It keeps the loved one, the caregiver, from having to email everybody. And I think this ended up in one of the Caring Bridges. I had been really contemplating not only my situation, but also for the last year or so, the number of people who have surrounded us with love and support in every imaginable way. It was amazing. And so I began to think, and I put together this little, I don't know what you call it. Each month of this passing year, my toes figuratively edged towards the abyss of my illness, and my eyes peered into the darkness. Kim, my wife, resolutely stood by me, as did our sons. We presented ourselves there before the unknown and the uncertainty before us. Soon, others began to join us at the edge of the abyss. They were family members. They were friends, familiar ones, and ones with whom we had lost touch 
with over the years. Neighbors, even strangers, seeing us at the edge willingly volunteered to stand with us. Then, and then someone said, I think I see a light down there. And others agreed, and finally I saw it too as well. And as our eyes adjusted to the darkness into which we gazed, we all began to see the light in the abyss. Grips tightened, arms wrapped around torsos. A light that at first simply pierced the darkness became the one thing our eyes gaped at as we all peered into the void that wants to find the abyss. And then I heard someone say, the light of life shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Some of us were familiar with these words. Others were not, but it didn't matter. It wasn't long before people began to step away from the abyss. They remembered the darkness, but it is the light that they carried with them. And then a few days later, I shared these words with the pulmonologist, the fellow in the PA that I saw on a daily basis as they did their rounds. And at this point, it had been about 10 or 12 days. Um, I think it was actually Christmas Eve when I read these words that I had composed earlier that morning. Yesterday, and I'm speaking to the pulmonologist, the fellow, and the PA. Yesterday, as you gathered around me to listen to my heart and lungs, I reflected on that I had never had so many lay hands on me so often. It has been a daily experience of biblical proportions. In my faith tradition, laying hands on another is one of the most sacred experiences that one may have. You may define your action as practicing medicine, and that is true. But you have also been a blessing to me and loving me, whether you were aware of it or not. Days ago, out of nowhere, I texted my wife, Kim, life has never been so full for me as it is right now. How could this be? I asked rhetorically. How could this not be? It can be because your care for me has been an act of healing, but it has also been an act of blessing. It is an act of loving. You are a part of a confluence of others, both near and far, who have surrounded us with love at this time. You, though, are practicing a unique calling, I told them. Each day we talk. You lay hands on me and listen to the lifeblood that fills my heart. But you also listen to the ruah, which is the Hebrew word for both breath and spirit that fills my lungs. And then the Lord God formed Adam, the Hebrew word for man or humanity, from the dust of the ground and breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. And Adam became a human being. The one thing that connects us intimately to our creator from the very beginning to this very day began with that one breath. And it is the very part of God that fills us roughly 20,000 times a day during our lifetime, whether we realize it or not. It is the, the fulfillment of life. 
we do exactly what Adam did so long ago. And it all started with God's breath that he has shared with us. So whatever happens in the, in the short or the long run, you are attempting to heal me. Regardless, you are blessing me. You are loving me. You have cared for my body and for my soul. And somewhere over that 14 days that I spent at Duke Medical Center, and thinking about all the blessings that I had enjoyed in my life up to that point, somewhere in the midst of that, I realized that I was just, I, I, of how full of gratitude I felt for all of the love and support that I had accumulated and experienced and continued to read from all quarters uh, for me on one hand. And on the other, the grudges, the wounds, the hurts, and even the schadenfreude that I was holding in the other hand. And I began to realize, I realized more than I'd ever realized in my life, that they were spiritually, emotionally, and relationally incompatible. And I think the bottom line in what Jesus was trying to communicate to his disciples, that at the end of the day, you can't hate people and say you love God or love just select folks and despise another set that don't, that don't work for you or push your button. No, one day in the midst of that, that whole thing in the hospital over Christmas, I texted Kim and I said, I am not the person I used to be. Not that I was ever a bad person just not the person that God hoped that I would become one day. The comment that Dr. Leith made so long ago about being a, not being a theologian until the age of 50, I imagine that as learned as he was, so much information in his head, I'd like to think that something happened to him around the age of 50, and that his faith and all this faith stuff that we talk about and preach about finally made more sense to him than it ever had before. And that he wasn't the same person he had been before. Not that he was a bad person by any means. Not just the person that God had hoped that he would be one day. There was an incident, I believe, that took place in his life, an event that served as an inflection point a moment of what Jesus would recall rebirth, a incident that Paul would say was transformational. It can happen at any time. You don't have to be 50. It happened to me in my 67th year. It can happen when you're a child. It can happen when you're on your deathbed. It can happen for a confirmant. It can happen if you're occupying a room on the end of life floor. It could happen at any point in your life. When the things that you've read and the things that you know, maybe mentally, really find a home in your heart, that's the only way you can ever be transformed from holding both hate and love at the same time to where you come to a place where Jesus wants you to be. You become the person that God has designed us to be that we finally begin to practice the things that we preach and that we practice the things that we profess. And it is the way that God has hoped 
and actually maybe even praise that comes to us. Let us pray. Oh Lord our God, you know us through and through. You know our good intentions and the things that we uh, proclaim to believe and, and practice. But until we are filled with your spirit and are changed to fully embrace the people you want us to be and have designed us to be and created us to be, we know that, that we cannot fully experience the love that you have for us in Jesus Christ. We are thankful for the ways that you have blessed us and we pray that you will continue to bless us in all of the wholesome and wholehearted uh, relationships that we have. And help us to let go of those that are not beneficial to us, not hating them or forgetting them, but finding a way to love each other in the ways that you want us to love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hold on to what is good. Return no one evil for evil. Love, even and especially the people that are hard to love. And let us go out into the world knowing we are surrounded and encouraged by grace. Alleluia. Amen. <laughs>